Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come to them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as in fact you are doing. Now let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for another beautiful day. Um, thank you for each and every one in this room. I hope that you will open our minds and hearts to hear the word that Alan is going to deliver to us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, we are um, continuing our series in the epistles to uh, the Thessalonians. And what Paul has been showing us here is that, you know, those who belong to Jesus really have different attitudes and values um, as they face uh, the things of this world. Um, and so what we've seen so far uh, for the Christian is that um, sex, for example, is a sacred and beautiful glue that holds marriage together. A marriage where each partner is passionate about taking their spouse to the cusp of heaven, where all of their sins and all their quirks and all their fears and all of their annoying habits will be healed and uh, renewed. And marriage is really committing together with God to do everything that you can to help lead and take your spouse to that place. And so when we, when we looked at that passage, what we saw here is that sex is really about investing. It's about giving. It's about serving. It's not about taking. And sex is really the glue that binds all of that together into a sacred commitment. And then we moved on to look at how our work uh, is neither about getting the money that we want in order to be able to do the things that we want, nor is our work a place to earn a sense of identity and value, but rather our work and the money it provides are to be joyfully pursued as those who mimic the creative image of our designer. See, we, we create and we love to create because we're made in the image of a creator so that we can share with those in need as he shared with us in his creation and freely give to those around us. Um, and then last week we saw that in, in light of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it really affects how we think about and approach death um, as humans, that, that God is really in the process of making everything new and refurbished, including our own sinful hearts and our broken bodies. And one day he's going to return to set everything right again, where we will never be corrupted in any way. Now, if last week was talking about how to face death 
in the light of the resurrection. This week we're going to be looking at how to live in light of the resurrection. Because the past resurrection of Jesus and the coming resurrection of all of us at the end of time has a tremendous bearing on how we are to live our lives today. So let's get into this and see what Paul has to say about this particular subject. And, and the, the first thing I want us to grapple with here before we get to the hope that the resurrection actually brings to us is to expose and to critique uh, a lot of the false hopes that people often choose to believe as they try to live their lives when they don't have this hope. Which, you know, if you're honest, if you're anything like me, it includes your own heart as well. Uh, and we, so we need to hear this. And what Paul says here is that all of our false hopes um, about the second coming, about the end of the world, um, come because of misunderstanding and assuming that we know what the end will be like. See, that's what Paul is saying here in the opening two verses. He says, brothers and sisters, it actually just says brothers, that's just a New Testament commentary, I won't get into that, bugs me. Now, brothers, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And what he's saying is the, the more facts and details that you think that you know about the second coming of Jesus, the greater your false hopes will become. Because our hope comes not from the details of how and when and where Jesus is going to return, but our hope comes from Jesus, our rescuer. Now, let me just give you an example of, of, of some of these false hopes. You know, for example, from a secular point of view, both the, the right and the left each have their own particular versions of the eschatological end of the world, uh, how the world is inevitably going to meet its doom. And so, uh, for example, in conservative circles, it, it's either a great economic crash because of uh, our out-of-control frivolous spending or there's a, an impending moral crash uh, from abandoning our Judeo-Christian ethics and everything is just going to fall apart. Now, for the liberal, the, uh, the inevitable ending of the world the demise, it comes in the demise of our planet through global warming, the rise of CO2 levels that eventually is going to make our planet unsustainable for life. <clears throat> and it's always changing. As a kid growing up, it was nuclear war with the Russians and we would learn how to duck and cover in our class. It's like, that's just silly. How's that going to protect you from a nuclear bomb? But we did it. Um, but, but what all of these views share in common, uh, besides the fact that they're theories of how the world is going to end, they also begin with the assumption that, that there is no God, that this world or this nation or this economy, it's all we've got, and we have to do everything we can to protect it. And, and when you begin to think that way, here's what begins to happen next. Each of these views then begins to develop their own set of ethics based on those assumptions. And so one group tells us that what is the morally responsible thing to do and the only thing that's going to save us from imminent destruction is, uh, for example, to eliminate all fossil fuels and to stop everybody, except for, of course, Taylor Swift and John Kerry, from jetting around the world in their private jets, <clears throat> to, to radically reduce the number of uh, farting cows, and, and as a result, to try to reduce the number of people that actually live on the planet. That's, you see, a moral ethic. Now, on the right, the ethic looks a lot more like, if we can't figure out how to fire all these ridiculous uh, 
politicians enforce a balanced budget. The only options we have left to us are maybe to become a prepper um, and stock up on supplies to outlast the next disaster or just buy all the gold and silver that we can and dump our currency. And, and you see, these are actually ethical values. And they're values that each group tends to think that we should be living by. Now, why? It's because there's an, a, start, a starting assumption about the end of the world, and it's an assumption that leaves God out of the picture. And so there are ethics that are based on human preferences. But listen, as we said last week, if there is no God, then that means there's no design. There's no purpose that our lives have to submit to. We're just random creatures that are brought about by chance, and therefore everybody can just decide for themselves what makes life meaningful and full of purpose because there is no inherent meaning that's given to us. But you see, if that's the case, right, then it's morally wrong for any of these groups to say, well, this is what we ought to do, right? Because this is how we ought to live because there is no ought. There's no basis for saying that anything is better or more morally valuable. There's only doing what you feel is important because it's just your own personal preference. And of course, you can tell that both sides, I think, feel a bit of um, lack of genuine substance beneath their arguments because of how desperate each side is to prove that science is on their side, right? Our side is scientific, it's rational, it's objective, but, well, we don't need to go into that. Listen, the, the point here is you can't say that the Christian view of the end of the world is merely wishful thinking when these other views that claim to be scientific and provable are really wishful thinking themselves, because every view is based on some assumptions. And when you wish for there to be no God, it's going to affect how you view your world and how you develop your sense of ethics. Now, listen, the critique that Paul is giving us here is not just valid for looking out at the world. I think it also has a lot to say for Bible-believing Christians, Uh, because there, there are a whole lot of Christians who approach the topic of the end of the world with their own starting assumptions about how how all this is going to play itself out. And they're often based on verses here and there, often in highly poetic sections of Scripture that can be, frankly, interpreted to mean just about anything you want them to mean. And, And entire theologies and entire eschatologies have been drawn up based on certain assumptions about how the end of the world, it's going to come about this way, right? And I want to press on you that it is just as wrong to do that as the secular versions. Because listen, as much as the Bible tells us about the end of the world, there's there's one thing that it is very clear about, and that is nobody knows when it's going to happen. Nobody. I mean, even Jesus said that he didn't know the date or the hour. And it makes me shiver a bit when I hear some Christians confidently saying that Jesus can't come back today because this hasn't happened yet, or that he's clearly coming back any moment now because this has happened. That's the one thing here that Paul is telling us that we can't do. Because the whole point of this passage is it's going to be a surprise. He will come like a thief in the night. He will come like a baby being born to a pregnant woman. And and if your view of the end of the world tells you that Jesus cannot come back today because something hasn't happened yet, or that he must come imminently any day because something has happened, you're claiming to have a knowledge that even Jesus said he didn't have. Now, of course, both the thief and the knight and a woman 
going into labor are, are both illustrations meant to convey a couple of things. First of all, they convey the, the inevitability uh, of these things. You see, thieves always operate under the cover of darkness, and babies always pop out of pregnant women. It, it's sure, it's coming. There's no stopping it, right? But nobody knows when. That's the whole point. And therefore, what Paul is saying is always be prepared. See, Paul is telling us that Jesus will return. It's certain. You can count on it, but nobody knows when. And therefore, his charge to us is to always be expected, always be prepared. And see, one of the things that Paul is warning us against here is speculating about the details of when and how, because speculation is always going to leave you off guard. Uh, in fact, as we'll see in a minute, it's those very assumptions about how the Messiah was going to come that caused the Jews to miss Jesus entirely because they had preconceived notions and he didn't fit those assumptions. And I think what Paul is getting at with these analogies here is that we should live as if Jesus is coming back this afternoon and therefore live with holiness and a watching heart. But at the same time, we should live as if he's not coming back for another thousand years and therefore invest in this world, care for its people, tend its natural resources like a wise gardener and work toward the healing and the redemption that Jesus' return is inevitably going to bring. And see, we need to live with both expectations in view, that he, he might come before this service is over, or he might not come for a hundred generations. That's his business. But we need to live as if both are true. And so the question that he gives us is, are you prepared? Are you living in a prepared way? And are you investing? Are you living in a way that invests in what God is investing in? Now, that's the dangers of the many false hopes when it comes to the end of the world, that we won't be prepared because of all the false assumptions. So let's, let's next move in, into asking what our true hope ought to be then. In light of what Paul is telling us, what is our real hope? And see, the thing that distinguishes a, a Christian hope of the last day from how all the rest of the world views it is, is it's the only view that's based on something that's already happened. See, all the other views about the end of the world are based on speculation about things that might happen with the economy, with the, with the planet, with uh, the Russians, with uh, you know, aliens, who knows, whatever. But the Christian view is rooted solidly in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, an historical fact that's already happened. Because listen, the, a Christian does not need to try and read the tea leaves out there to interpret the signs of today and tomorrow to figure out when Jesus is coming back. Because we have the concrete reality of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection that we can look back to. And we can see how he's already done the beginning of the end. See, he killed the power that death has over us. And his resurrection ensures that one day we too will have power over that grave. We'll rise beyond it. But as Jesus tells us in Luke, you, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Or as he says in Matthew 24, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. See, Jesus says nobody knows when, but it is a sure thing. It is a certain thing that he will return. And it's just as certain as the fact that he lived and he died. And because of his life 
in his death for us, we are held securely in his arms today, right? And, and that means that when the final judgment day does come, we're still going to be held safely in his arms. And if you are resting in Jesus for your life, you don't have to fear that final judgment day because you're his. You belong to him. Your sins are covered in Jesus. So that's kind of the basics of it. What does all this mean practically for us? Um, is Jesus coming back soon or is it still a long ways off? Because listen, that's really the only thing that we really want to know. When is he coming back? And here's, here's where I want us to look at how the Bible reframes how we view history uh, and how it reframes the world that we live in. Because you see, what the Bible teaches us here is really some mind-blowing stuff. Because you see, when it comes to... Um, prophecy in the Bible about the end times, we have to understand that for people in the Old Testament, they had no concept of Jesus coming two separate times. I mean, it never would have entered their minds as a remote possibility, which is why so many people missed him, because they had all these assumptions about the coming Messiah. And so you've got all these Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, and some of them deal with his first coming, and some of them deal with his second coming, and many of them are all mixed together. And for the people of that day, it was all one single event. And so, for example, you know, here's Peter on the day of Pentecost. You remember, he's preaching on that day, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all those who were there uh, preaching the gospel that day on the apostles. And, and what does he say? He says, guys, we're not drunk like you suppose. This is simply what the prophet Joel said was going to happen. And then he quotes Joel by saying, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit in all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And you see, all of that was referring to what was happening right there that day in their midst. But then he goes on quoting the rest of the prophecy, the very next verse. He says, and I will show wonders in the heaven above and in signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And that part is referring to his second coming. And they're all mixed together here in one single prophecy. Now, what all of this means for us practically is that Jesus has come and he's established his new kingdom. And it's now running toward the future that he has set for it. But at the very same time, the old age, the, the age of Satan's range, it's, it's still running in parallel with it. See, that, that old kingdom, that dying kingdom, will continue to run in parallel with Jesus' kingdom until he comes again the second time. And so what this means for us practically is that we now live in a very unique period of history where we have two parallel kingdoms running side by side. It's often called theologically the now but not yet or the overlap of the ages. But you see, the, the old kingdom of Satan, is the, it's the kingdom of this world. It's the kingdom of the natural world. It's the kingdom that we are all born into, the kingdom that all of our hearts are born aligned to. And when a person becomes a Christian, a, a new kingdom takes over the allegiance of the heart with new values and new priorities and new allegiances, but it's only a kingdom of the heart. And you still live 
physically in the old kingdom. And you still have a heart that's not yet been fully perfected into this new kingdom. And so your heart even itself is torn between the now of Jesus' new kingdom and the not yet of its coming full completion one day. And of course, this is why we place such a great emphasis here on trying to understand how does this all fit together functionally? How does this operate in my life? That because of the life and death of Jesus, your sins have been paid in full. See, your debt is gone. And in God's eyes, you are legally righteous. You are holy. You are perfect. But in reality, you're still a mess, right? In reality, you still live in a body that's full of sin and death. And the only thing that will ever bring about your full healing, the, the old nature, it has to be gone and dead. It, you have to die. And, and, and I mean, unless you happen to still be alive when Jesus returns, the only option is your death. That's the only thing that will stop it. See, we, we often wonder, if God can view me as holy, legally, right now, today, why can't he just change my heart to make it easier for me to obey him, to make me more holy in reality today? Why, why doesn't he just take away my struggles and make life a little bit easier for me? Um, and Paul is telling us here, well, yeah, he could do that, but it would take your death because that's what it takes to kill the old nature. And so you and I, we're stuck in this weird place where we live in two kingdoms, two kingdoms of, frankly, opposite values. One is trying to kill us, and the other is working to save us. And see, for the Christian, th this new kingdom of the heart is the true allegiance of our true selves. It's the real you. It's the new you that you are becoming. But, but the old nature is always trying to drag us down. And so we have to fight, and we have to fight hard to stop listening to its lies. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this battle in his own heart. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if what I do not want to do, uh, now if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then his conclusion is, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, this is the battle that we fight every day. And it's a battle that only Jesus can ever win for us. It's a battle that is sure in its outcome because Jesus has already killed the power that death once had over us. Now, that's a very unique way of understanding how history works and how our world is playing itself out around us. And so what I want to do as we end here is simply ask, what are the implications of all this? <clears throat> how does this affect the way that we're supposed to live in the light of Jesus' second coming? Because 
I mean, that's the whole question we're trying to understand here today. And one of the first questions I think that implications we need to grapple with here is, is the fact that there will always be both light and darkness happening at the same time, not only out there in the world, but within your own heart, within your own life. You know, look at verses four through eight. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. So he's saying you belong to this one, but it's clearly possible for you to still get drawn back into the old one. So he's charging us, don't do that. See, the implications here is that the world is not plunged totally into darkness. This world is not as bad as it could be if it were not for God's grace. Nor does the light of Jesus completely overcome it because none of us are as good as we could otherwise be. Both of these are existing side by side. And there are some people, he says, who belongs to the light, to the kingdom of the future. And there are some people who belong to the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom that's passing away. And we all as believers have both of those that work in our hearts. And both are running side by side as neighbors and friends, as co-workers and fellow church attenders, as the old you and the new me. They're all there working together. Now, what this means practically for you and me here today is that we have to learn how to live in a balance between this already but not yet. Because see, if you focus too much on the not yet, the, the whole idea that there's really nothing that good that's gonna happen until Jesus comes back again, you'll become, I guess, a fundamentalist because you'll be pessimistic and you'll be cynical about the world. You'll see the world around you as evil and tainted, not really worth investing in. And, and your job really becomes needing to protect yourself from all the negative influences of the world around you. You'll become one of those Christians who try uh, to huddle safely in your Christian ghettos where we can just somehow hang in there together and, and see if we can make it till the final day when Jesus comes back. But you won't be very interested in the physical and emotional well-being of this world because you'll look around at the world and all you'll see is a sinking ship. I mean, it's all going down anyway, and you will be forgetting that Jesus has already done some, um, something amazing and life-changing in his life and his death and his resurrection. Now, that's the one error we need to avoid. The other area, error obviously comes on the other end of the spectrum when you focus too much on, on the now, on the already, and you expect that life is somehow going to become easier uh, because now I'm a Christian. And see, this error tends to be naive about the power of sin and the depth of sin in your life. You'll be naive about the real struggles that people in this world have. You'll be naive that both Christians and non-Christians alike will have to suffer, and often quite tragically. You'll tend to miss how broken this world really is and how suffering is just a normal part of life and how powerfully gripping that sin nature can be in your heart. See, if you focus too much on the now, you'll be frustrated with yourself that you don't get over your problems more quickly. I should be getting better. I should be changing faster and easier. Life shouldn't be this hard. And you'll get also frustrated with God that he's not giving me the power to change faster. And see, as Christians, we constantly fall into these two errors. And Paul is calling us here to find a way to hold both of these in these truths in tension. See, to be confident in the final outcome 
but to realize it's not fully here yet, that the best is yet to come. See, to be grateful for everything that Jesus has done for you and to join with him in fighting against all the ongoing struggles and trials of life in a broken world, but knowing it's never going to be healed this side of heaven. But one day it will be fully recognized and healed. See, essentially what Paul is calling us to here is to be actively responsible for your now, for your today, for the broken world around you, but to do so with an allegiance and a responsibility toward a future kingdom. And what does it look like if we actually live like that? Practically, I think it means that Christians will not get bent out of shape about wars and economic downturns and political scandals and pandemics and all the injustice happening out there in the world because we know we live in a broken world. And so we expect it to be filled with trouble. We expect it to be filled with pain and suffering and misery. It's just unavoidable in a broken world. And yet Christians can live with a sober, self-controlled attitude toward life because we know that the best is yet to come. And anything that we might miss out on in this life, any struggle that might rob us of some enjoyment in this life, it's still coming. You're not going to miss out on a thing. And see, this is what gives us the strength and the motivation to invest in the lives of the hurting around us, to, to roll up our sleeves and get dirty, mucking around in the mess of people's lives so that we can point them to Jesus, so we can feed them, so we can clothe them, and so we can fill them with dignity. Listen, it, it is an historical fact that Christianity took over, swept through the Roman Empire dramatically for one particular reason, and that is when the plagues came, the, the pandemic, right? Um, it, it drove the pagans out of the cities in droves for their own personal safety. And it caused them to abandon their sick and loved ones, uh, their sick children, their sick parents, just abandon them to save their own skin. And it was the Christians who stayed behind. It was the Christians who stuck around and cared not only for their own sick and dying, but for the sick and dying of their pagan neighbors as well. And of course, a lot of them died in the process of doing so. But you see, it is the... It is this understanding of the coming resurrection that enables us to live, as Paul says here, with sober self-control instead of the panic of self-preservation or the, the selfishness of my own sensual pleasures. See, Paul says here, live with the self-control that Jesus might come back any moment, but also live with the self-control that it may be another thousand years. And we need to be working toward justice and equity and dignity for all of our neighbors. L listen, this view of the end times makes you incredibly confident in the gospel. It enables you to look at people who are incredibly messed up and are bitter and hard and still have hope because God can change anybody. I mean, that's what he does. He transforms people. That's his business. So be hopeful for the worst people in your life. The gospel does change lives. Listen, all of this means that the Christian can engage the world around us. We don't have to run from it. We don't have to hide from it. We don't have to protect ourselves from it because Jesus has already overcome the world. And he's fully about the business of renewing it. And he's calling us as his children into the family business where we can now engage the world without the fear of being tainted or dragged down by it. But on the other hand, neither do we need to Christianize everything. Uh, and only do business with Christians, and only buy products from 
believers and only listen to Christian music, whatever that is. Um, That's a whole other subject. God's common grace works through everyone to produce beauty and form and function that everybody can benefit from. And see, what what the world is, is producing is a reflection of their creator, whether they realize it or not. And all this is true because the already has come. His transforming power is here. I mean, if you want some practical examples of how the light of the gospel has already begun to light up this world, let me give you a few examples. It was Christians booting off of these ideas that led to the creation of child labor laws to protect kids. It was these very uh, truths that led Christians to push for the equality of women in our culture. It led to the establishment of hospitals and nursing homes and halfway houses. It it led to the outlawing of slavery in the West because of how it viewed the high dignity and value of all people. That's what Christians were doing. They were serving the poor. They They were getting dirty in the muck. They were getting sick and dying in the cities. They were investing in the world around them. Listen, we do not need to hide as believers in this world because we serve a conquering king. And so we don't need to be afraid of anything, but neither are we naive enough to believe that we can produce heaven on earth. And see, Paul's summary here at the end in verse 11 is, guys, encourage each other with this stuff. Build each other up just as, in fact, you're already doing, because you see, as a church, we are a community that waits together for his return. And so he tells us to encourage each other. In other words, I think what Paul is saying is, guys, you're going to forget this stuff and you're going to start to panic and you're going to start to give in to the pressures of this world. And it's very easy to, for, to let your fears get the better of you and to forget that the victory is already won. See, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to become so focused on the not yet or too discouraged with the, uh, the now of his victory. And so Paul tells us here, as a community of believers, Build each other up. Remind each other of these things. Bring comfort and hope in the midst of each other's despair. See, we need to talk an awful lot more about heaven and maybe less about our own personal goals that tend to focus on trying to build our own heaven right now on earth. We need to comfort um, those around us who struggle with the promise and the hope that as bad as things are, one day everything's going to be made new again. And we have a home in the future and it's coming, and it's sure. And therefore, he says, as a people laugh together, cry together, rejoice with one another, while we collectively cry out, come soon, Lord Jesus, come back soon. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help for us to be able to live our lives um, understanding the truth of your return, that we would not be fearful of this world trying to survive it, nor would we be naive of it and um, expecting that somehow we can create heaven on earth. But I pray that you would help for us to love well and to invest well, to really just roll up our sleeves and get dirty, uh, because that's what you did. You are a God who played in the dirt and made everything that is. And we're made after your image, and you've asked us to do the very same thing, to roll up our sleeves and get dirty as we work toward the healing and the restoration of all the brokenness around us. Lord, we thank you for the promise that that's what you're doing and that one day you will fully make everything sad come untrue. And so I pray that you would help for us to be passionate about being part of the family business, that we would invest in bringing healing and hope and dignity and joy
and rescue to all those around us who are struggling. Help for us to do this with one another as a body, as a community together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.